0: Can we talk something else? Can can we talk about something else? Out there. Negative energy. You can most certainly feel it. For those of us who have ever been emotionally, sexually, physically abused, you'll know that it gathers like a storm, feeding on itself until it can no longer be contained, before raining down on you in a torrent. The abuser almost always feels refreshed after unleashing their darkness. They may apologize profusely or retreat somewhere, embarrassed. There are many who claim that it can't be helped, that they must be sick, that they need to be medicated with alcohol and drugs to keep their demons at bay, or at the very least on some sort of chain. They'll claim that it's not their fault, that they have the devil in them. I, like many, have a mean streak. It's something that often surprises me. I can feel it, linking itself together when I'm exposed to a situation or a person that annoys me for whatever reason. I am usually almost helpless to allowing it to build up inside build up until it's palpable, until my eyes grow dark, until my tongue presses painfully against the back of my teeth. I'll let it swirl within me sometimes, enjoying the sensation, like a crackhead holding that hit deep in the lungs, riding the waves of relief that smoke brings, absorbing its power, until forced to release it and start the clock that ticks back down to the weak place. There is tremendous power in the negative. It allows you to peel back, to expose yourself at a base level. To throw away the appearances and say what you really feel in the harshest of ways. I'll roll with it sometimes, enjoying its power, its promise of relief. But I'm in control. I'm using it. Until I hold it too long and suddenly find myself striking, exposing what's been going on inside, and it's always the same result. I'm fucking crazy. What the hell is wrong with me? And the answer I give is always the same. What the fuck is wrong with you? What the fuck is wrong with everything? I'm working on it. I'm really working on breaking down whatever the problem is rather than allowing it to build up in my mind, rather than allowing my potential victim to dig themselves deep enough under my skin for me to justify burying them. And this is all on a small level. I'm not talking about abusing my family or uppercutting a sex worker mid-conversation in some no-tell motel. For my part, I'm talking about a belligerent drunk at a bar or an asshole in some scorching hot line of that hellhole they call Disneyland. Disneyland. Richard Ramirez used to speak of that place, sarcastically, mind you. Here he is after receiving the death penalty. Big That's all going territory. I'll see you in Disneyland. He said this from a young age, from the time that he understood that places like Disneyland weren't for kids like him, that Disneyland was some representation of having made it. If you were going to Disneyland every year, you had it together. You were chewing the cherry on top of the American dream. Ramirez felt weak. Felt that this world was shit, and not worth pretending that it wasn't. It didn't take long before he decided to drop the pleasantries, drop the nice guy routine, and just let Rip and be as bad as he wanted to be. Why not welcome that negative energy? Why not fill yourself with it? Why not let it replace your soul? Let it seep into your veins, permeate from your pores? Why not? It's a good feeling. It's a powerful feeling to embrace that darkness. I know. But it will consume you cares not for what it can do for you, but what you can do for it. I understand some of what Ramirez was. I understand his contempt for humanity. I have a lot of it myself, but what I'll never understand is his capacity for evil, how deep his well was, how enormous his potential depravity. Richard Ramirez was a bad man. It takes but one look into his eyes to see this. He was pure evil for a spell, while in the midst of his killing spree and For the years spent in court after he was finally apprehended, it was extremely obvious that the man they called the Night Stalker had a little extra wickedness in him. It was not something that he could help. He was being ridden by his demons. And if you look close enough at some of that court footage, you can from time to time see the little kid he once was. The little kid had long ago decided which way he would swing. And that if he were going to swing, it would be for the fences. You can still see that kid. In the eyes of Richard Ramirez, swirling in the depths of those black pools blank-faced and indifferent he shrugs his shoulders then fits to his head a mickey mouse cap upon which the insignia is a pentagram welcome to dark topic i'm your host jack luna this is episode 24 richard ramirez February 29th, 1960, Richard Ramirez, a Leapling, is born. Richard was the fifth and youngest child of Julian and Mercedes Ramirez. His parents had been childhood sweethearts and had married against the desires of their families. Mercedes was an American citizen, originally from Mexico, but with family in El Paso, so the couple took advantage of this and planted roots stateside. Mercedes had given birth to her first two sons, Ruben and Joseph shortly after the atomic experiments in Los Alamos. Her second son, Joseph, was born with a debilitating bone disease. His long bones grew out curved, which caused him great pain, and necessitated he spend much of his childhood in hospitals, receiving and recovering from, surgeries. In nineteen fifty two, immigration border agents detained Richard's father Julian at work, then drove him to pick up his family, and deported all of them, despite the fact the Mercedes and the kids were Americans. They moved to Waraz, where Julian became a cop, and they had another son, Robert. In 1954, after arranging for Julian to get an American citizenship, the Ramirez family moved back to El Paso. Julian worked laying train tracks and was mostly a peaceful man, though not without some deep-seated issues. He was prone to insane outbursts where he would smash himself over the head with a hammer until blood streamed down his face, most often as his family watched in horror, screaming, crying, begging the husband and father to... Leave himself alone. Richard's mother, Mercedes, went working at a boot factory with lots of chemicals that were hazardous for developing fetuses. There were no safety precautions in place yet in 1955. She worked there while she was pregnant with her two youngest kids, Ruth and Richard. In 1955, Victoria, Richard's aunt, also moved to El Paso with her son Miguel, who was the same age as the eldest Ramirez child, Reuben. While pregnant with Richard, Mercedes suffered much from the fumes at work and got very ill. She even stopped working for a few months in her third trimester. After Richard was born, he was especially close to his sister Ruth, who was four years old at his birth. It was a busy, hectic household, and as a result of such situations, the young cling to each other, so as not to be left behind. When Richard was two, he suffered his first head injury. He was being watched by an inattentive babysitter, and he asked her to turn the radio on so he could dance to the music. But she ignored him. So Richard tried to do it himself. The heavy dresser fell on him, knocking him out for 15 minutes and leaving a deep, long gash in his forehead, which required 30 stitches. When he was five, Richard and his siblings were at a park, blowing off steam, when Richard ran to his sister, who was on a swing. She couldn't stop the momentum, and she knocked him out. Again, young Richard Ramirez's head had to be stitched. When Richard's older brothers grew into their teens, they started getting into trouble. Both parents held down jobs to keep the family fed and although Julian would beat the shit out of his oldest child, Ruben, if he heard of any misbehavior, once the parents left for work, Ruben would invite friends over anyways, and they would sniff glue and smoke joints, laughing at the youngest of the group, Richard, who was only nine, who attempted to keep up with the older boys' drug use. As they got older, Richard's cousin Miguel and Richard's oldest brother, Ruben, were arrested for breaking and entering. Richard spent more time alone after these arrests. He wanted very much to be like the older boys, especially his crazy cousin Miguel. But because he was so much younger, his parents started to shelter him from the older boys' escapades. Richard turned to TV, which he would watch for hours on end, mouth always chewing at some sugary treat. In fifth grade, Richard started having grand mal seizures, during which he would curse, fall to the floor, and shake. This got better as he aged. He was later diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. He did okay in school, and besides the occasional violent seizure, was a shy, quiet kid. He spent most of his time alone. When Richard entered high school, he was almost immediately recognized by his gym teacher as being a gifted athlete. It wasn't long before he was the quarterback of the football team, and his father proudly attended practices, then opening day. But the season had barely kicked off when Richard suffered a seizure on the field. His coach kicked him off the team that very day, concerned for the young man's health. This hurt Richard deeply, and he lost interest in school altogether. As a result, he soon lost the attention of his father as well. At this time, Richard's cousin Miguel, who had been sent off fighting in Vietnam, returned home. Richard was 12 and started hanging out with his older cousin exclusively. Miguel's time in the army gave him a better social stance, so Julian let Richard hang out with Miguel, but he was concerned of the influence Miguel might have on his son. He was right to be concerned. Miguel would get drunk with young Richard and and soon begin sharing with the boy pictures of himself brutally raping and murdering women in Vietnam, binding them to trees, torturing them, dismembering them, This fascinated young Richard Ramirez, and his cousin immediately recognized that his little cousin had the devil in him, and decided to take him on, as an apprentice. He had much to teach, and as he didn't work, he spent a lot of time with Richard, driving around and smoking weed, versing the boy in how to hunt small game in the desert, how to kill by way of stealth, how to break into homes without being noticed, how to become one with the shadows. Richard's father was concerned about all the time his son was spending with Miguel, who he knew to be a sociopath, but couldn't put a stop to it. Richard was getting older, becoming stronger, and would simply run away to his cousin's house if his father tried to restrain him. Miguel's wife, Jessie, was also upset with the amount of time Miguel and Richard were spending together. They had a young family, and she couldn't understand why he wouldn't work, why he was happy to collect assistance and blow all the money on smoking weed with his punk little cousin. Of course, if she voiced her annoyance, Miguel would beat her into silence. Tell her to mind her own fucking business, which consisted of working and caring for two little ones without much help. Young Richie was proving to be a natural cat burglar. He was slim, athletic, fearless, and was able to get in and out of homes much easier than Miguel. They were making some money as a result, but Jesse didn't need to know this. Besides the benefit of having Richard do the dirty work, Miguel was finding that his little cousin made him feel powerful, like what he'd done in Vietnam was worth something. And he valued this as he felt he couldn't share with anyone else who he truly was. A psychotic killer. Richard seemed to understand him, to idolize him, which made Miguel proud. And he wasn't going to allow his wife and babies to take that feeling away from him. May 4th, 1973. Thirteen-year-old Richard Ramirez is hanging out at Cousin Miguel's house when he reaches into the fridge for a Coke and finds Miguel's gun. He asks Miguel why his gun is in the fridge and the answer is that he wants it cool. His wife Jessie has been on his case all morning, and he thinks it's quite likely that he'll need it shortly. When Jessie comes home with groceries, she immediately begins complaining about Richard being over and of how Miguel should be out looking for work. Young Richard Ramirez sips nervously at his Coke, then observes as his cousin rises from the couch, storms into the kitchen, retrieves his gun from the fridge, and points it at his wife. Jessie laughs and spits at Miguel that he wouldn't dare then gets shot in the face. The bullet hits her right above the lip. The couple's two toddler sons are in the house. They start screaming, crying, and Miguel instructs Richard to get out and not tell anyone. He was witness to this. Before Richard leaves, Miguel grabs the boy by the shoulder and tells him that this is how you take care of a bitch. Richard nods, his eyes and heart brimming with deep admiration. He heads out into the neighborhood, thrilled by what he's just witnessed the surprise death mask of Jesse imprinting deep into his psyche, the wails of her children sealed with him. It's not a bad memory, he's storing. It's to become one of his fondest. And it's not until he's an adult in prison that he shares it with the world. Miguel is eventually charged with the murder of his wife, but his lawyer, claiming his client was a suffering war hero, manages to get Miguel sent to a mental institution rather than prison. That summer of 73, Richard heads off to visit his older brother Reuben in LA. Reuben was an on and off again heroin user by this time, and to fund his habit he would spend much of his time planning and performing burglaries. As soon as Richard arrived in the Greyhound, Reuben, who planned on making good use of his younger brother, took him on a tour of downtown LA and introduced him to his fences. Richard then spent the summer breaking into homes and selling the goods for drugs. Ramirez, at the age of 13, already knew what he wanted to be a cat burglar, and a drug addict, just like his brother and cousin. The summer of 73 soon ends, and Richard, against his wishes, rides the bus back home. His parents notice that their son has changed. He barely goes to school, preferring to sneak back home while his mom and dad work and watch television. He was moody and could not be reasoned with. Heavy metal blares from his bedroom constantly, and upon his walls begin to appear hellish images. Richard's family was very religious, and soon the arguments between him and his father sent Richard running from the house. There were certainly beatings, and Richard, who had likely been molested by a school tutor, had not dealt with any of his childhood trauma in any way. Now he was entering the age of puberty. His sexuality was a new demon that confused and intrigued him, and the violent thoughts he held almost constantly in his mind began to take on a new flavor. Many nights, Richard would flee his home and end up in the local graveyard, brooding thinking deep, dark thoughts. As the sun would set, any fear he should have had became packaged as strength within him. It was all bad. The crime, the drugs, the abuse, the influence. He learned to accept it all as strength. Satan was teaching him the way, he realized. All of this was just how it should be. Thirteen-year-old Richard Ramirez hugs his narrow shoulders tight and curls up between the tombstones. He sleeps like the dead. In May of 1973, Richard leaves home for good and moves in with his sister Ruth and her husband, Roberto. Richard soon develops a relationship with his brother-in-law, which was unusual, as Ramirez rarely, if ever, attempted to form bonds. He was a proud outsider, a loner, so from Roberto he must have sensed that there was a benefit to be gained. He may be gleaned that Roberto was dark like himself and could teach him something, like Cousin Miguel had. If so, Richard was correct. Roberto, it turned out, was a peeping Tom. A freelance hobby which Ramirez had never considered, but appealed to him now that all he could think about lately was women. They say you pick up a little bit here and there as you grow older, and you can never be quite sure what's going to stick. What's going to swing your trajectory ever so slightly and dictate your future? With Richard Ramirez, it's not too difficult to see why he ended up a horrible monster. But that's not to say that this wasn't by design. We do choose our influences. We do have some say in the way we process our experiences. Ramirez considered himself destined to be a force of evil. So he searched out any opportunity to strengthen his chances of becoming just that. There is no such thing as luck. Luck is just preparation meaning opportunity or simply random fortune. Ramirez was preparing for a life of crime and mayhem and in having this goal, He was drawing any and every opportunity to propel himself towards and galvanize himself for what he saw as his destiny. It's very likely that Roberto liked baseball or maybe cars as well, but somehow the conversation came about with a 13-year-old boy about sneaking up to the bedroom windows of women to spy on them in the hopes of seeing them undress. I assumed this didn't just come up. I assumed that even at this young age, Ramirez possessed some magnetism, some kind of charm that easily brought out the worst in others, and made them comfortable with showing off the skeletons in their closet. Eventually, Ruth kicked Roberto out for his underlying perversions, and they got divorced, but Richard continued to creep around the neighborhood and break into places while the residents were asleep. Now, rather than avoiding the areas of the house where residents might be, he began silently making his way into bedrooms, seeing how close he can get, thrilling when the occasional man or woman of the house would suddenly wake, peer around the room dumbly, then return to sleep. Ramirez, at the age of 13, was already so comfortable in the shadows that he was nearly one with the dark. He soon discovered LSD and peyote. The desert beckoned for him to visit for night hunts while tripping heavily. And in doing so, young Richard Ramirez developed more and more his personal relationship with Satan, sacrificing animals beneath the cold moon, an indescribable sense of power and acknowledgement blasting down and bathing over him as his bare feet dug into the sand. Ramirez was not a typical teenager. His peers lay safe and snug in their beds while he slept in graveyards. There was nothing out in the night for him to fear. He began to realize that he, himself, was that thing, the source of foreboding others get when the sun goes down. He was the dark. He was the fear. Time passes in a blur, and it's not long before he's completed his youth. The silent homes of strangers, which he often found himself standing stock still within, listening to the soft breaths of a woman sleeping. The graveyards that he considered sanctuary so many nights, and dreamt of wrapping his hands around the throats of said women. The desert, and its ancient wisdoms, that swept not through but around Ramirez's drug-soaked and developing mind as he searched the vast open spaces for his own dark brand of truth. It was all behind him now. The development was complete. He was ready to raise hell. And the City of Angels seemed the perfect place to begin. Richard dropped out of school. There was no point in him continuing. He rarely showed up anyways, and when he did, he could hear the snickers of his classmates. They didn't understand him. The once shy, sweet, handsome kid had become a grungy, moody dirtbag. It was a relief to everyone when he finally didn't return. Ramirez secured work at a Holiday Inn and immediately took advantage of the passkey he was entrusted with and began stealing from rooms. He soon found himself upping the game, keeping an eye out for rooms recently occupied by women, then likely waiting outside the door after showing them to their room and waiting to hear the water begin splashing in the tub before entering. It wasn't long before Ramirez was unable to contain himself to simply spying and pounced on one of these women putting his hand over her mouth as she showered and attempted to rape her. Fortunately, and unbeknownst to her attacker, this woman had a husband who had been parking the car, and he soon entered, immediately hearing the commotion in the washroom. He was a large, angry man and didn't hesitate to viciously beat Richard to the brink of death before calling police. When authorities arrived, they found the culprit unconscious and being pressed to the ground by the still-seething husband. Ramirez had two black eyes, and his face was grotesquely swollen. Police arrested his limp body and then carted it over to the hospital. When Richard came to, he told investigators and his family that the woman had invited him inside and lied he tried to rape her when her husband appeared. They believed their handsome little Richie and paid for his lawyer. Ramirez caught a break as the couple were from out of state and had no interest in pressing charges. They just wanted to move on and put the ugly incident behind them. A seed was planted in the gnarly soil of Ramirez's mind as a result. He now knew he needed to be more disciplined to work only by moonlight, but that regardless, even if caught, he would ultimately be allowed to continue his dark adventure, which he had just proven he was worthy of embarking upon. Hail Satan. March, 1978. Richard is freshly turned 18. To celebrate, he sells some stolen items and buys a bunch of weed in El Paso that he plans to sell for a tidy profit on the West Coast. It is finally time, he feels, to begin his life of mayhem. He hops on a bus with a ticket to California and is soon surrounded by his people. Misfits, derelicts, cretins. He no longer stands out. L.A. is exactly what he needs it to be, at least the areas which he chooses to frequent. Drug dealers call out as he passes, offering everything from weed to speed to heroin. Prostitutes dot almost every corner. The night is alive in this place. Fistfights break out and the police just drive on by. A homeless man shits while leaning against a lamppost and returns Richard's wide smile as he floats past. Ramirez feels elated, free, and at home for the first time, in his young life. At first, he stayed with his brother Reuben and his wife Susanna, but it wasn't long before Reuben accused Richard of trying to have sex with his wife as he worked, and they fell out. Fortunately, the pavement in L.A. is rarely cold, and Ramirez adapted to street life instantly. He was a natural. This was his true environment. He soon developed a cocaine addiction. He was mainlining the stuff and getting more and more into Satan and heavy metal music. He stole constantly so he could support his habit. He had no interest in vanilla sex anymore. He fell in love with S&M and realized he was in defeat. Except for a relationship with a neighbor girl when he was 16, she said that he was sweet and shy, Richard never had an intimate sexual relationship. Only the sex he could get was street workers. He was kind of a loser incel, really. In 1979, Richard started living mostly in stolen cars. He drove all around L.A., familiarizing himself with the nicer neighborhood and stealing stuff, always at night. He snuck in while people slept. Then, Richard discovered PCP. It was while under the influence of this angel dust that he committed his first known rape. After assisting a pretty young lesbian to score, they went back to her place to smoke. He kept making passes, even though she made it clear her lack of interest and eventually she was forced to kick him out. Ramirez pretended to go, but instead of heading down the stairs and out of the apartment, he climbed up to the roof and waited. Then, when he felt certain that she'd gone to bed, he crept down the fire escape to her window, climbed in soundlessly, and was soon on top of his prey, taking what she hadn't been willing to give. Soon after this first heinous crime, Ramirez came into possession of Anton LaVey's The Satanic Bible and was so moved that he stole a car and drove to meet him in San Francisco. LeVay was impressed by this handsome young devil and invited Ramirez to attend a ritual in his church. During the ritual, Ramirez claimed to have felt the ice-cold hand of Satan touch his heart. It scared him so much, he called his mother that night, from San Francisco, to ask her to pray for him. Ramirez begins practicing Satanism on his own and did not join a group. He went back to cocaine and burglary and was so lost in his own world that he stopped washing himself or changing his clothes or brushing his teeth. He ate mostly candy and fruits and had terrible teeth as a result. He went back home less and less, and when he did, he stayed in a motel. In 1983, his sister Ruth traveled to LA to collect Richard and take him back home. They knew he was abusing drugs and were concerned for his well-being. Ruth found her brother holed up in his hovel, eyes ablaze from constant cocaine use. He told her all about his commitment to Satan, and that he was never going home, and that he was a thief by trade, and good at his job, and to fuck off. She considered grabbing him by the arm and dragging him home, but something had changed in her little brother. Something in his eyes had died, and in its place pulsed a frightening blackness. She left, disturbed by the interaction, and relieved to be away from whatever had captured, her little Richie. We'll likely never know how many Ramirez tortured, raped, and killed, but in 2009 it was discovered that he intended to take with him, to the grave, the details of at least one heinous murder. Ramirez's DNA was matched to evidence found decades earlier in a San Francisco apartment basement on April 10, 1984, the scene of what's been described as a ritualistic-style killing. Nine-year-old Mae Lung was found this day, half-naked, raped, and hanging from a pipe by a blouse wrapped tight around her neck. Her arms, by some reports, spread like Christ on the cross. She had been with her eight-year-old brother earlier in the afternoon, when she'd realized a dollar was missing from her pocket. She ran off to find it, and evidently, Richard Ramirez found her first. The DNA of another man was also found in the basement, on a rag. It's not clear if this man, who would have been a juvenile at the time and has never been named, was with Ramirez when he killed the nine-year-old. But if so, maybe not so surprising, considering that Ramirez was himself tutored by older psychopaths to rob, rape, and kill. This unidentified and possible apprentice of the Night Stalker is currently serving at a sentence for other unknown crimes. June twenty seventh, 1984. The murder of Jenny Venkow, 79, Glassell Park, California, between Pasadena and L.A. Ramirez breaks into the elderly woman's house under the cover of night, after removing the screen of a window. He required money to pay a sex worker, but could not find cash or valuables when rifling through Miss Vinkow's bedroom. So he stood over her and stabbed her in the chest with a six-inch knife. She woke up screaming, and he kept stabbing her and then slit her throat from ear to ear. After, he stayed with her dead body, stabbing it again and again while masturbating idly. Then, at around 5 a.m., he left. He ended up becoming stuck in morning traffic after his grueling night shift and soon realized there was an LAPD cruiser sitting next to him. He was in a stolen car and covered with Jenny's blood, but the cop never looked over. Ramirez tallied this up as a sign of favor from Lucifer. The elderly victim of this crime, Jenny Vincow, had been living in Brooklyn, but her son Jack moved her to L.A. to be closer to him. It had become a happy routine that he would visit her around lunchtime every day. On this day, he came by and brought her some Chicken McNuggets as a treat. He intended to take her for a scenic ride after lunch. He noticed the missing window screen in the open door. When he entered, he found the missing screen, propped in the middle of the living room, the house ransacked, and blood smears on the walls. He called out to his mother and got no answer. He walked to her bedroom to find her on the bed, covered entirely by a blanket. He removed it to find her mutilated corpse, the head nearly severed from the body. He ran out of the apartment yelling that his mother had been murdered and for someone to call the police. The first officer on the scene immediately called LAPD homicide. Detective Jesse Castillo and Mike Wynn arrived to take over the scene. They noted blood in the kitchen sink and deduced correctly the killer had washed his hands. They waited for the medical examiner's representative to arrive before the blanket was removed and bagged for evidence. They observed multiple stab wounds, including defensive wounds on her arms. Lividity was on her back. She had been wearing a blue nightgown, which was now pushed over her waist. The crotch area of her girdle had been cut off, and there was a deep stab wound to her inner thigh. Rigor mortis was present, and liver temperature revealed she had been dead between 8 and 10 hours. The body was taken to autopsy, and the rest of the crime scene crew arrived for evidence. They could find no prints by dusting inside the house, but they eventually found four on the window screen. Ramirez had made the mistake of taking off his gloves because he couldn't work the screwdriver with them on. He had yet to be caught for a crime in L.A. so the fingerprints weren't matched. None of the neighbors heard or saw anything. The autopsy showed the killer was experienced in killing, the pattern of wounds to her throat explicitly proving this. What had initially looked like a single wound was, in fact, two deep cuts on either side of the windpipe, connected by a deep slash. After this murder, Ramirez became completely swept up in his drug use. He committed many small burglaries to pay for rent and drugs and what time he didn't spend on the prowl he spent in his room, watching MTV and listening to heavy metal. He was consumed by thoughts of sex and murder. He didn't bother showering and his body odor was noticeable. Get some of that native. He went months without any more violence, just lots of drugs and alone time and burglaries. It occurred to him during this period that if he continued with his wild ways, then the fun would be over before he was satisfied, before the devil was pleased with him. He knew that cocaine made him inattentive and would lead to him being caught. So he quit and took up pot smoking and occasional drinking instead. Some people take vacations to clear their head. Dedicated killers like Ramirez grab a shovel and go deep into a pit, then walk back out once they strike an answer. March 17th, 1985. Ramirez buys a twenty-two revolver on the street, knowing it to be the favorite weapon of assassins. A twenty-two is small, but at close range, still deadly. Bullets are cheap, and though they often don't have the velocity to tear right through a victim, they make up for this weakness by ricocheting about inside, causing all kinds of issues. He had figured out that murder was the ultimate high, and he was planning on making it, his new insatiable habit. He soon steals a car and begins cruising for a fix, a convoluted mix of horrific music blaring full blast in his mind, though the interior of the vehicle is dead silent. Ramirez, wearing his ACDC cap, all black outfit, with eyes to match is now completely committed to becoming one of the most evil human beings to ever walk this earth.